come in, but still sick. By the time I walked in, he was just up in bed, screaming at this resident. He's just like, I'm going home. You get me out of here, whatever I have to do so that I can leave, you're gonna do it. And I didn't spend a single second trying to convince him to stay for another day. I didn't think about what it must be like to have your clothes taken away and to have a lot of tubes stuck in you and to be woken up by nurses all day and all night to actually be sick. What I should have said was, Ben, I'm the doctor in charge of your care. What can I help you, you know, do or what can I help you solve? Um, which is what I usually say when people are that angry. It's usually powerlessness um, that makes them that angry, which is entirely inflicted by us in the hospital. Instead, what I said was, are you sure you want to go? I'm normally pretty good at talking people into staying in the hospital. Not all the time, but most of the time. A combination of listening and empathy and action can help people agree to stay. But on that day, I couldn't muster up the energy to do any of that. On that day, the only thing I asked was if he was sure. He said he wanted to go. He signed the papers and he left the hospital. I moved on to my next patient. I remember that he still looked sick. And, you know, he was definitely better than when he came in, but he still looked sick. And it's never a good thing when a patient leaves without you thinking, the patient's ready to leave. If they leave for any reason and you don't think they're ready, that's, that's almost always bad. 48 hours later, I met the resident team for teaching rounds again. Do you remember Mr. Do you remember Mr. W, they asked me. He's in intensive care, they told me. He'd been readmitted overnight hemorrhaging from a gastrointestinal bleed that the GI doctors could not find to fix. He was bleeding faster than he could be transfused. He was dying. And I knew as I heard their news that a better version of myself could have prevented all of this from happening. And a better version of myself, the, the genuine version, I'd like to think, could have caught the small thing that became the big thing that led to the hemorrhage. I could have had the opportunity because that better version of myself would have engaged with him, heard him out, and tried to convince him to stay. Instead, I had just warned him that he could die if he went home. It's a routine threat when we sign somebody out AMA. And now he was back and dying. I didn't exactly make a mistake in the usual sense of the word. I didn't ignore a vital sign or forget to order a medication. I just didn't try very hard. I didn't really try at all with this patient. I figured that if he wanted to go home, I wasn't going to stand in his way. And that person, that cynical, detached person, is a terrible doctor. That doctor kills people. Mr. W died later that same day, just two days after I discharged him. Not only against medical advice, but against my better judgment. I knew better. I just couldn't manage to care about him. It's a pretty fundamental thing to expect from a doctor. 
that the doctor who's taking care of you in the hospital or in the office will care about you, not just for you. But I had stopped seeing patients as people. They were just diseases and lab values, test results. I sat for a minute in the little conference room where we did teaching rounds, and I thought, what on earth is wrong with me? As it turns out, there is a name for this thing I was suffering from. We call it clinical burnout. Clinical burnout is just this. It's emotional exhaustion, a sense of depersonalization, and deep cynicism. Burnout is awful. It's bad for the doctor, and it's worse for the patient. But as doctors, we don't talk about it. But there is power in naming burnout, just saying its name out loud. Just like any disease, once you name it, you can begin to see it and understand it.